Amen. Good morning. It's good to hear you sing. It has been called the highest graveyard on planet Earth. It is, of course, Mount Everest. The highest mountain in the world at over 29,000 feet has been successfully climbed by over 6,000 people. But over 3,000 or 300 rather climbers have died attempting to join that select group. Did you know that most of the fatalities on Mount Everest occur after the climber reaches the summit? After the adrenaline rush of reaching the top, countless climbers succumb to fatigue and various forms of altitude sickness on the way down. In fact, some scientists suggest that the mortality rate for climbers is six times higher after reaching the top. I think that speaks to a universal truth about human existence. After a mountaintop experience, we often find trouble below. Think of Moses who climbs Mount Sinai and hears the word of God only to descend and see God's people descending into chaos, anarchy, immorality, and idolatry. Think of Elijah ascending Mount Carmel to see the glory of God as he ignites the sacrifice only to descend to death threats and the depression that overtook him on the bottom. Perhaps you've also seen something like that to be true in your own life. You have some sort of mountaintop experience, maybe a, a great family vacation or a significant accomplishment at work or, or maybe something incredible in your family life or maybe some spiritual mountaintop experience, but shortly after that comes chaos, frustration, pain, suffering, difficulty. I would suggest to you that Jesus and his disciples were no exception to that general principle. If you're not already there, look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. If you were with us last week in Matthew's gospel, we saw Jesus and three of his closest friends having their own kind of mountaintop experience. You remember Jesus with Peter, James, and John ascend this unknown mountain, and on that mountain, Jesus appears to his disciples in all of his dazzling glory. Well, as they descend that mountain, there's trouble below. And in God's providence, as we gather today to celebrate several baptisms at the conclusion of our service, it's interesting that the text in front of us today gives us a simple lesson about faith in Jesus. Here's the main lesson that our passage teaches us this morning. Small faith is enough faith if it's faith in Jesus. If you take nothing else away from today's sermon, that's what I want you to understand. Small faith is enough faith if it's faith in Jesus. 
With God's help, I want to answer three questions from the text to help us understand why small faith is enough faith. Three basic questions about faith. Why do we need faith? Where do we place our faith? And how much faith do we need? Question number one, why do we need faith? Look at Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, so Jesus and his disciples are descending the mountain to the crowd below, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So as, as Jesus descends the mountain, he's met by a crowd of people and a dad who's desperate. The, the dad's desperate because his son is having these uncontrollable seizures. Now, you ever seen someone having a seizure? You know how absolutely helpless you can feel in that moment as they lose control over their body and begin to shake and convulse. This dad loves his son, and he can't do anything to help his son. But the text tells us these are more than just any ordinary seizures because Somewhat suspiciously, it seems like he has these seizures whenever he's near water or fire. How many times has this dad or somebody else had to jump into a, a body of water to rescue this little boy from drowning? How many burn marks are on his body from all the times where he has seized and then fallen into the flames? And so you can understand why this father is absolutely desperate. So he tries to bring his son to Jesus. Jesus is nowhere to be found. He's at the top of the mountain. And so the disciple does the next, or this man, his father, does the next best thing. He brings his son to Jesus' disciples, the nine that were on the bottom of the mountain. And he brings his son to the disciples and he says, can you guys help my boy? And despite all of their effort, these nine disciples who had been with Jesus by this point for about two years are unable to help this boy. Now, as bad as that situation is, it really even gets worse than that. Verse 18 tells us that in addition to the physical challenge of epilepsy that this boy is suffering from, he's also being tormented by a demon. Do you notice verse 18 that Jesus rebukes the demon? And as the demon leaves the boy, the boy is healed. Now, I want to stop for a second because I think it's important to note that the Bible doesn't teach us that every human affliction is caused by a demon. And maybe you're here and a lot of your exposure to Christianity has been something you've seen on television or you know, maybe some sort of prosperity preacher on television. And you might hear someone say, we rebuke the demon of cancer or we cast out the demon of, of arthritis or whatever. There's really no basis for that sort of thing in the Bible. Yes, it is true that sometimes a person is afflicted by both a demon and a physical affliction, 
But that's not always the case. Often Jesus is healing people and he's not casting out a demon that's causing the sickness. He's just healing the sickness. So it's not necessarily helpful to think that behind every physical affliction is some sort of demonic oppression. And yet, sometimes a demon can be involved in physical suffering. When Mark tells us this same story in his gospel, he says this in chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. The father says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit, or a demon, you could say, that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Notice the power that this demon had over that little boy. He has the power to make him mute, unable to speak. He has the power to control his body, to throw him down, to cause convulsions. And most certainly, it is the demon that is causing this boy to suffer from seizures conveniently around water or fire. So yes, Satan and his demons can sometimes harm even the body. Think of the story of Job in Job chapter 2 where Job takes all of, or Satan takes all of these things away from Job hoping that Job will curse God and die. Job doesn't curse God and Satan says to God, well, you just touched his stuff, touch his body. Let me touch his body and let's see what happens next. So yes, Satan does sometimes have the ability to harm the body. Maybe you're thinking, I'm glad things like this don't happen today. Let me suggest to you, brother, sister, friend, whether you realize it or not, every unbeliever is under the control of Satan to some extent, just like this little boy. Every unbeliever, to some extent, is under the control of Satan just like this little boy. So where, where do you get that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the God of this world? Who is Paul referring to? He's referring to Satan who blinds the minds and the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see and hear and believe and understand and respond to the gospel. Maybe you think, well, does Satan really have that kind of authority in this world? Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, we know that we are from God. Christians, we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you are safe in the hands of God. But if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't belong to God through faith in Jesus. You live in bondage to Satan and his minions. You may not see the effects of that bondage, the way that this little boy was affected by his enslavement to or controlled by this demonic force, 
but you are in bondage nonetheless. Maybe you say, well, why? Ephesians chapter 2 answers this for us in verses 1 to 3, where it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a nickname, by the way, for Satan himself. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before or until you put your faith in Jesus, you follow in the footsteps of Satan and his minions. You might feel like you're not that bad, but that's the way the Bible describes every single person apart from Jesus. You are not, dear friend, an innocent victim, controlled by Satan, unable to do anything. You are a a willful sinner who has rebelled against a holy God. And as a result, you are a child of wrath, the Bible says, meaning that you deserve God's righteous punishment for your sin. So, So let me ask the question that we opened with, why do we need faith? This is the first question we're trying to answer. Well, then why do we need faith? Because, dear friend, without Jesus, all of us are slaves to an enemy that hates us and wants to destroy us. Christian, before you trusted in Jesus, you were just as captive to the enemy as this little boy was in this story. You were blinded by Satan. You were in his control. You were following in his footsteps. So, dear Christian, praise Jesus for grace. Praise him that you have been rescued from that horrible state, that incredibly horrible condition. And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, until you trust in Christ, you are a slave to the evil one, just like that little boy. Perhaps you're wondering, well, why do I have to put my faith in Jesus? Isn't it just enough to have faith in something? Well, that leads to our second question, which is where do we put our faith? Where do we put our faith? After the dad explains his problem to Jesus, Jesus responds in verse 17. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, perhaps you notice that Jesus seems a bit frustrated here, doesn't he? By the way, if you think that Jesus never got angry, that would be incorrect. Jesus did get angry, but he did not sin in his anger. So there's holy frustration in this moment as Jesus basically cries out, how long do I have to put up with you people? That's not directed at you, by the way. That's what Jesus is saying as he is encountering this frustrating situation. Now, who is he talking about? Who is he frustrated towards or at? I believe the answer is most likely the nine disciples who were unable to heal this little boy. 
See, why would he be frustrated with them? Well, Jesus had given his disciples authority to take care of problems like this. Let me show you. Look at the screen at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, where Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. Notice what it says. And he gave them what? Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal what? Every disease and every affliction. Now, if you read the Gospels, you know that sometimes the disciples are actually effective and successful at casting out demons and healing people. They should have been able to heal this little boy. Why? Because Jesus told them they could. He gave them authority to do so. And by the way, having authority over demons is not a normal thing. I realize there's all sorts of movies, I think even one in the box office right now, about exorcisms and that sort of thing. And there's this idea that all Christians maybe have this authority to cast out demons. That's not scriptural. For example, in the Bible, in the entire Old Testament, you won't find anybody given the authority to cast out demons. You won't find it anywhere. In the New Testament, you won't find one example where believers are told new, today, believers today are told we have the authority to cast out demons. This seems to be a really limited authority that Jesus himself had and he gave to his disciples during his ministry and during the writing of the New Testament. We don't have authority to just willy-nilly cast out demons. The disciples did. This is not a normal thing. Now, you might be wondering, well, why does Jesus have authority over demons in the first place? I believe there's two answers to that question, and in those two answers, we'll also find an answer to our question about where we should place our faith. Two reasons why Jesus can give the disciples authority to cast out demons. Number one, because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's the creator. Colossians says all things were created by him and through him and for him. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we know that demons are fallen angels who have rebelled against God. Who created them? Jesus did. Why does Jesus have authority to cast out demons? Because Jesus is the one that made them. A second reason why Jesus has this authority is because Jesus is sinless. As we saw earlier, unbelievers are captive to Satan and his demons because of our sin. Think of it like this, Satan and his demons are like fishermen with a hook and a bait, and all of us keep nibbling at the hook, right? Jesus never nibbled. He swam in the same ocean as we were, as we do, tempted in all ways like we are, and yet without sin. So Jesus has authority to cast out demons himself and to give the disciples authority to do that. Why? Because he is God and because he is without sin. It's no surprise then how easily Jesus is able to help this little boy. Look at verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon 
and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Now, we don't know how long the nine disciples tried to cast out this demon. They could have tried one time and been done, or they could have been me when I try to start my car when the battery's dead, you know, over and over and over and over, and maybe this time it'll finally work. They may have tried over and over, all nine guys taking turns. They just keep trying. They can't do it. Jesus says, bring him to me, and he heals him instantly. Why? Because he is God. So where do we put our faith? We put our faith in Jesus. Now, dear brother, sister, friend, as important as this healing is, this was not the main reason why Jesus came. Jesus does a lot of healing. He does a lot of casting out of demons of people. He even raises the dead throughout his earthly ministry. But th none of those things are the main reason why Jesus came. He tells us the main reason in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, when he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Dear friend, Jesus came to die as your substitute. That's the message of Christianity. We believe that God is holy, He's the creator of all things, and as a result, he has authority over all of his creation. Our job is not to find our own path, but to submit to his path for us, and yet every single one of us has sinned against God. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So because of God's holiness and our sinfulness, we're in trouble. We deserve God's righteous wrath. But the Bible says that, G that God the Father sent his son Jesus to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died and rise from the dead, inviting anyone who repents and believes in him to be saved. So let me ask you again, dear brother, sister, friend, where do we place our faith? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Dear friend, you're going to put your faith somewhere. The only ground firm enough to carry the weight of your faith is Jesus Christ. Where do you place your faith? You place your faith in Jesus well, maybe you're still concerned. Maybe you're thinking, well, I, I just don't know if I have enough faith to put my faith in Jesus. If you're feeling that way, we really need to get to our third question this morning, which is how much faith do we need? So picture the scene. Jesus comes down the mountain to chaos below. There's this boy who the nine disciples have tried to heal over and over again. They're not able to heal him. And Jesus says a word. He's healed. And these nine disciples are left kind of like with egg on their face, right? I mean, we tried this and it didn't work. So verse 19 tells us the disciples came to Jesus privately. And they said, well, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. At first, Jesus' words might seem like a contradiction, don't they? I mean, first he says the disciples don't have enough faith, and then he says even mustard seed-sized faith, it's a tiny little seed, that's enough to move mountains. So what's going on? What is he saying? I think verses 17 and 20 help us to understand what Jesus means when he says the disciples have little faith in verse 19. If you notice in verse 17, Jesus calls them faithless. Notice that. He doesn't say little faith. He calls them a faithless and twisted generation. So the problem is not that they have a tiny bit of faith, but it seems like they don't have any. And then in verse 20, he tells us that even if you have just a tiny mustard seed amount of faith in Jesus, that's all that you need. So I think that the disciples' problem wasn't that they didn't have enough faith, but they had their faith in the wrong place. Perhaps it went something like this. Jesus in Matthew 10 gave his disciples authority to cast out demons, and we know from the Gospels that they were successful at times. And perhaps after so many successes, casting out demons and healing people, they stopped depending upon the one who gave them the power to do it in the first place. Perhaps They got so used to casting out demons that they felt like they didn't need Jesus' help anymore. And the problem was that their, whatever amount of faith that they had, it was no longer in Jesus, but in themselves and their own ability and their own strength and their own experience. Hey, we've done this before. I wonder, Christian, if this would be a good time for us to pause and reflect and ask ourselves, in what ways are we just like these disciples? Where are you tempted to trust in yourself instead of Jesus? In what areas of, you, of your life have you grown so comfortable that you're no longer relying on Jesus' help? What things are you trying to do in your own strength? Do you remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, give us this day our daily bread? How many days has it been since you've asked Jesus to meet your need for daily bread? Or how often is it tempting to just think, I've got enough in the pantry, the fridge is full. I remember years and years ago in seminary hearing a a preacher say during seminary chapel, the most dangerous thing about ministry is that you can learn to do it. In other words, you can get to the point and whatever your ministry is, singing on the stage, preaching a sermon, teaching a vacation Bible school class, working in the nursery, being on the safety team, greeting people, you can get so good at it, you don't need Jesus. What a dangerous place to be. That's exactly the predicament of these disciples. If that's you this morning, Christian, let me just encourage you for a second. As many steps as you've wandered from Jesus, it's always only one step back. You will never find a relationship like that where that's true. 
You can wander for miles and miles, and you turn around, and he's right there. One step back. So if you have wandered in this way, the Bible says, as Jimmy prayed earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Christian, if this is you, don't just be crushed by this. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. The key to mountain-moving faith, Christian, is not the size of your faith, but the strength of its object. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Faith is like an extension cord. This is powerless right now. I can hold it with faith. I can hold it with enthusiasm, but it's powerless. I could plug this in to a bowl of mashed potatoes, and it remains powerless. I could plug it in to an anthill. I could go to some condemned house where the power has been shut off, and I could plug it into an outlet there, and it's still powerless. See, faith is like that. What matters is not the strength or the size of your faith, but what it's plugged into. How many of you in here this morning, dear friends, are plugging your faith into something smaller than Jesus? And you're tempted to think, what I need to do is plug harder, try harder, believe more. No, you need to believe in Jesus. The solution is not more faith or a longer extension cord or a fancier one, but it's to plug it into the source, the power, Jesus Christ. That's where mountain-moving faith comes from, not by the size of your faith, but the strength of its object. By the way, when Jesus says we can move mountains, he is not literally saying that you can move mountains if you just believe enough. I remember years ago when I was a boy reading this and going on vacation into the Smoky Mountains, and I remember when no one was looking, kind of, you know, force grabbing the mountains and really believing, and maybe, you know, maybe this will work. If I just really believe, nothing happened, by the way. That's just, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, when he says, he talks about moving mountains, that was a common figure of speech in his day. When you talked about moving mountains, what they meant in their figure of speech was was to overcome obstacles. So Jesus is not promising, if you have enough faith, then you can just have a rosy path towards whatever you want, pain-free, wonderful life. No, he's promising that if you trust in him, you will have in him everything you need to endure the bumps and bruises along the path that he has ordained for you. That's the promise. Not a promise to just magically make things move where you want them to and happen the way that you want them to, but it's a promise that you can overcome with his help whatever lies in front of you. That's what moving mountains means. Small faith is enough faith if it's faith in Jesus. So how much faith do we need? Mustard seed-sized faith will do as long as it's in Jesus. Not in your good works, friend. Not in your church attendance. Not in your conservative beliefs. 
not in your well-behaved kids, not in the kind things that other people say about you. It's, it's not in any of those things. It's only in Jesus. And the solution is not to try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and muster up more faith, but make sure your faith is plugged into the right place, the person, Jesus Christ. Small faith is enough faith if it's faith in Jesus. Many of you have heard me share this illustration before, but I think it helpfully illustrates what Jesus is saying in this text about faith. Imagine that you're standing alone on the edge of a cliff, maybe a little bit steeper than this. This is pretty steep, though. I'm high up here today. You're standing at the edge of a cliff. So kids, picture this. You're at the edge of a cliff, and you look behind you, and a mean, big mama grizzly is chasing at you. Now, there's nowhere to go. There's no rocks. You don't have a slingshot. You don't have a gun. You're not going to fight the thing. You are doomed. But you look down the cliff as the bear is fastly approaching, and you notice a precipice down below, and you notice on that precipice a tree. If you jump off of the cliff and grab onto the tree, you can be saved from Mama Grizzly. Now, in that moment, it doesn't matter how you jump. You can jump with all the machismo and authority and gravitas of John Wick or Indiana Jones or John McClane and grab onto a twig and you're gone. Or you can jump screaming like a little girl. Apologies, little girls. <laughs> you can jump screaming like a little girl and grab onto a sturdy branch and you're saved. It is not how you look or feel or act or sound as you jump, but simply that you grab onto the right branch. Dear brother, sister, friend, you and I are in the same predicament, aren't we? Charging towards us is the punishment that we deserve from our sins the white-hot wrath of a holy God. You can believe with all your heart and your good works, but you're just grabbing onto a twig that can't save you. Or you can barely summon just a mustard seed amount of faith and put that faith in Jesus and you will be rescued and adopted into his family forever. The question is not how much faith do you have, but where is your faith? Put it in Jesus, dear friend. In just a few moments, we're going to hear stories from four people who are be being baptized today. Just like every sinner in this room, all of them were once under the control of Satan. But like every Christian in this room, all of them heard what Jesus did to save them. He 
came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death on the cross. He rose from the dead. And each one of them put their small faith in a strong king. Each one of them grabbed the right branch. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I want you to be encouraged today. As you witness yet again evidence of our God who is mighty to save, be reminded that what saves is not the strength of your faith. What keeps you saved, Christian, is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of your God. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, would you trust him today? In just a moment, you're going to see a picture of new life in Jesus. That new life is available to anyone in this room who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank